0: All right, man. welcome to the introduction for episode 158 of Crow 777 Radio. Jason Lingren is with me, and if you recall, we were doing the decades, uh, we're finishing out on the 60s. We will move into the 70s and 80s and show the overwhelming importance of culture, among other things, on the shaping of what happens in society, and basically what happens in much of the Western world, so goes the rest of the world. But among the things we're going to talk about, we will reiterate the mercurial idea, the misuse of the symbol of mercury that comes to us through older natural sciences like alchemy being misused and the symbol of the crossroad right in that symbol. And basically what it comes down to is when you are drug, whether you want to or not to the crossroads, you have to make a decision. It is that simple. Let's jump in with Jason Lindgren and cover the 70s and the 80s. Cheers. All right, ma'am. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 158. Jason Lingren is with me, and we are going to wrap up our run through the decades. We're going to be pulling out of the 60s into the 70s. Welcome, Jason.
1: And I find now good afternoon to you.
0: Yeah, it's almost May, man. Feels like we're about a month behind here. It actually feels like it's like it should be March, but uh, there's been 22 days of rain here. Quite a thing. Uh, for the intro, I have done one show, and it's a grassroots brand new podcast called Talk Junkies. They asked me on for their opening episode, which I did a couple months ago. They asked me back uh, yesterday, which I did, and I think they've already got it posted there. Um, they're just getting started. Uh, you got anything for the uh, intro, Jason? Yes, we're going
1: to be doing a free showing of the film on May 8th at Louisiana State University, or LSU as it's commonly called, at the uh, main music recital hall at 7 p.m. Free showing, lots of seats, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, come on down, and we're going to do some interviews that will go as part of the press kit and possibly on the Blu-ray release as well.
0: All right. So one more time. This is happening at LSU, which is in or around New Orleans. What day, what time? May 8th, 7 p.m.
1: It's actually in Baton Rouge at LSU Music Recital Hall.
0: Oh, sorry. I said New Orleans. Right. Um, So it's free to everybody, just like the New Orleans opening was. If you can make it there, you can walk in. No tickets needed. Open to all. Anything else for the intro?
1: Now let's get back into the decades. We are on to part two, where we're going to get into the 70s, but we have a little bit more of the 60s to finish up first.
0: All right. We need to cover. We're going to mention. Um, there's been a lot of interest in two episodes that we did. Uh, episode fifty six talks about the alchemical transmutation and demonstrates factually that Robert Johnson, the supposed Delta Blues King, it was never a living person. He's just an alchemical construct. Uh, also, episode fifty three does the same thing with nuclear weapons to show that they're nothing more than a construct directly tied to the mercurial idea or the idea of mercury and alchemy or the misuse. Um, So I'll I'll say this before we jump in. Uh, One of the most important ideas that we have put forward for folks to use here is the idea of the crossroads. If you go online, if you're not familiar, look up the alchemical mercury symbol. Looks like a little circle with horns and a cross for a body. Um, That cross is in fact representing the idea of the crossroads in the same way the bikini atoll nuke nonsense was named crossroads in the same way Robert Johnson has a song that is so famous called crossroad blues. Here's the idea being used or put in front of people where they're forced to make a decision. Think about a real crossroads in the world where it's just two streets crossing each other. When you come up to that crossroads, you are forced To make a decision this is no different than an idea put before you which is why alchemy the principles of alchemy can be used mercurially in this way so when you come up to the four-way stop you have some decisions that you have to make you can turn left you can turn right you can go straight you can go back the way you came or if you want to include the idea of the fifth element you can sit there till you die even if you decide not to make a decision that is in fact a decision So the main takeaway here is when you are brought to the crossroads or when information is put before you, you are being drugged to the crossroads and a decision must be made. There's no way around it. And so basically what this means is every time something is put before you, you have to make a decision. So all I can say here is choose wisely. Anything you want to add, Jason?
1: Choose wisely, indeed. Uh, The whole Robert Johnson thing is interesting. We looked it up again the other day just to see where they're at with it, and you had made the comment that they seem to be wiping him out of history in the sense that he was the prime mover and shaker behind rock and roll. They seem to be shifting it over to other folks at this point. So I did some more digging, and indeed, the Wikipedia article, for instance, no longer mentions him as the prime dude. But he might have been a real person because I did find – some uh, clips from blues men who said they knew him. So I do wonder if it was just a guy who played for a short time and they took this and then melded all these other things together as we've seen done with other things. There's the possibility he may have been real as opposed to being a completely fictional character. But honestly, we're starting to get back in time to so much who actually really knows.
0: Well, for me, Jason, he's not real. And anyone who's attributed with having known him was either had what they said amended or they're lying. Uh, And I know that's a blunt thing to say, but I spent my whole childhood knowing everything about Robert Johnson, because back in those days, he was the foundational premise for everything that followed. He was the godfather of rock, of Delta blues, of other types of music that supposedly anchored off the Delta blues. What they've done is when we did episode 56, Um, It was about three months later, I saw a history of rock music. At that time, he was obliquely mentioned, just barely. A short while later, maybe half a year, I saw a complete rundown of the history of American music. Robert Johnson had been lifted, completely lifted from the narrative, and he was replaced with Charlie Patton, Charlie Patton. Well, the same thing is going on with Charlie Patton. The whole story is tied to slavery and hardship, and it's doing the same thing. Um, Robert Johnson is a Even Even if you could demonstrate somewhere in the world that there was a person who played the role, the whole premise that was laid down in my young life, which was spent mostly involved in music, is false. And now it is that the Robert Johnson is the barn wall and animal farm. They are erasing his name and slowly replacing it with Charlie Patton. In another 20 years, I would venture to say there will be damn few people who have ever heard of it. And not only that, Jason, you're an audio engineer. And we both heard in the Robert Johnson uh, recordings, 29 count the ways, of course, born in 1936, count the ways it goes on and on and on. But to get back to the point, we could detect that the music had been speeded up. And just the other day, you and I sat down, you got on your tools, and you slowed down that music, and lo and behold, you can tell that it's been tampered with. For my part, Robert Johnson was never a living human being, and and I have done endless research and unfortunately wasted a huge part of my young life being involved in accepting the wrong choice at the crossroads, being invested in these things. I
1: definitely found some people arguing about that, whether it was slowed down or not. I can say, in my honest opinion, that when it was slowed down a little bit, it sounded quote-unquote right. Now, that doesn't mean 100% anything, but it sounded a lot more like, just everything everything sounded correct like a guy pl- sitting like there playing yeah. it's not authentic it sounded yeah. like a black guy doing his blues thing and i've heard that before and i've heard a lot of black folks singing in front of me due to my old job i heard lots of them and they're very they were very good at what they did and i know that general sound and that's what i heard on that recording when it was slowed down it didn't sound all weird and kind of pitchy and just right. all over the place, like the way the recordings have been released officially. So it seems like there's something there. It's not hundred percent proof. It's my opinion, but I'm coming at that opinion from uh, 25 years of experience as an audio engineer.
0: You know, most of these things we talk about are plausibly deniable until you get to your adult human mind. But the, the fact remains here, Jason, I heard it without knowing what you thought, and you heard it without knowing what I thought. So that's also a little bit of evidence. But it kind of reminds me, most people are not old enough to remember back in the days of record players and 78s, uh, those record players were played with belts, and often they would speed up or slow down if the belt had shrunk or become slack. That's kind of exactly what it reminded me of but for people who want a very good breakdown of how mercury the the misuse of alchemy and mercury was used to create robert johnson go back to episode 56 and i'll just reiterate this short part here i took the song the crossroad blues which is almost like taking the root of all rock and roll music or it used to be they're changing it now um and so let's look at the crossroad blues i went down to the crossroads um And then it says, I looked east and west, and it says, I fell down on my knees, and all these things. Well, here's the breakdown. Oh, right, he also says, rising sun going down. Well, how can a rising sun be going down? To quickly get through this, and if you go back to 56, you'll hear the entire breakdown. Yeah, he went to the crossroads in his mind, all right? Um, He did not sell his soul to the devil. He was referring to the sun at its low point. On 1231, which encodes 33, it's the winter solstice. It's also the allegory for hell. There's your devil. Um, He looked east and west. Well, why didn't Bob look north and south? He looked east and west because that's the path of the sun, the ecliptic. Um, And when he says rising sun going down, well, that doesn't make sense. Actually, it does. When the sun goes down to the solstice, it's said to be falling to its lowest point, yet every morning the sun rises. So, Robert Johnson is singing about watching the rising sun on the day of the solstice or its low point where it has gone down. That's what the whole thing is about. Um, and if you go back to 56, you'll hear a better breakdown than that. And we do the exact same thing in episode 53 when we demonstrate what nuclear weapons are. So do we need to beat that dead horse any longer?
1: No, that sounds about right to me. And you wanted to touch on the nukes thing one more time.
0: Yeah, um, I think I'll, I'll give it a push. But the other thing in, in Crossroad Blues is he falls down to his knees. Well, why does old Bob at the crossroads fall down to his knees? Because when the sun is at its low point, it's in the sign of Capricorn in the zodiac, and that is symbolized by the knees. So that's really all a thinking person needs to know. But again, it's it, I do a much better job of breaking it out in episode 56. I even put an episode image on that that helps people understand the symbolism. And you've got to realize the crossroads is a important idea. That's why everything can be tied to Mercury, the secret societies and everything else. If I make up a falsehood in this world and then present it out to the world, every mind that encounters it is basically being dragged to the crossroads where you must make a decision. But let's let's jump in here. That's enough of that. What do you want to say about nukes? You know, I'll just say this. Go, go back to episode 53. Jason and I will revisit this because there are so many sites cropping up um, that are even showing more evidences that we did that nuclear weapons do not exist as described. And of course,
1: the 1950s and 1960s were the big decades where they pushed the nuke scare with duck and cover and pounding it into the kids' heads and all that sort of thing. Then came the Cold War nonsense and all that, and of course, they were, again, threatening the whole global thermonuclear war stuff, but anyway.
0: Well, we, we, we should say, Jason, one of the main principles about the misuse of alchemy and the Crossroads idea is to instill fear. No one has to describe to you the fear that the idea of nukes creates, but in Robert Johnson's case, there's a devil, he sold his soul, he's miserable, the hell hounds are on his trail. That fear is what's used to cast spells, and when I say cast spells, it's not what people think, but spells are real. It's like if I say blue ball, I just made up a thing out of thin air and I put the image of a blue ball in your head. That's magic. And that is akin to the magic that is being leveraged off the emotional state of fear. It's exactly why all the news uses fear porn. Exactly. Because all our consciousness helped create this place. And if you can get a few hundred million people to be scared all the time, well, I think you can figure out the rest. Anyhow, that's enough.
1: So before we leave the decade of the 1960s, let's have a little quote from 1964, Dr. Strangelove about fluoridation. Do you realize that in addition to fluoridating water, why, there are studies underway to fluoridate salt, flour, fruit juices, soup, sugar, milk, ice cream, ice cream mandrake, children's ice cream. You know when fluoridation began? 1946. 1946, Mandrake. How does that coincide with your post-war commie conspiracy, huh? It's incredibly obvious, isn't it? A foreign substance is introduced into our precious bodily fluids without the knowledge of the individual, and certainly without any choice. That's the way your hardcore commie works. I first became aware of it, Mandrake, during the physical act of love. Yes, a profound sense of fatigue, a feeling of emptiness followed. Luckily, I... I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. Loss of essence. I can assure you, it has not recurred, Mandrake. Women, er, women sense my power, and they seek the life essence. I do not avoid women, Mandrake, but I do deny them my essence.
0: There it is, man, in your damn face, directly lifted from the movie Doctor Strange Love, and every word of just what was just echoed from that movie. People should think about um, this. Is the pre-echoing of things in our world? But yeah, what else can you say? I mean, it's literally in your face, is it not? And
1: it sounds like old Stanley Kubrick knew a thing or two about what was really going on.
0: Well, even the guy he's talking to is named Mandrake. Someone can look that up. It's it's generally considered to be poison, often uh, associated with things like witchcraft and spellcasting. But there's all that.
1: So as we leave the 1960s, let us not forget about the amount of social upheaval that was created and fostered throughout the decade. We have the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and the Second Wave Feminist Movement. Not that a lot of the folks involved in many of these events didn't have good intentions. There are a lot of what could be called well-meaning idiots doing that sort of thing today as well. But no matter how good the movement may seem, make no mistake that however organically they may or may not have started, every movement was infiltrated, then controlled from the top
0: down. Yeah, it's a bit like a, a steam pipe that's about to burst. So they put a pressure release. That's what these movements were, basically. It's it's why the superhero movies exist. Because everyone feels helpless, they go watch these superheroes kick ass, and there is a meaningful release of accomplishment in the minds of people. These are all subtle things that are done, but let's give an example, Jason, to show, to demonstrate that uh, these things were, were put in place, and then people who intended to do good and make change, participated in the farce that was put before them, which is just designed as a pressure release, basically. Let's take the women's movement. Go ahead. First, you get the women. Then you've got the children.
1: So follow the men. And this is a quote that is attributed to Adolf Hitler. And of course, it certainly makes a whole lot of sense.
0: You know, another thing about these movements that we're about to touch on here, Jason, is they have many more intended consequences than just the initial releasing of pressure. Uh, In past episodes, we demonstrated how the women's lib movement was orchestrated from the top down, and one of the results of that actually lowered birth rates, which is where we are now, because it convinced women to not start having children until they were in their 30s, when historically, it was generally in the early 20s, this kind of thing. Now that people have looked at it in reverse, they can see the trend of when birth. The the initial first birth in a family was pushed up into the 30s. The overall effect of that is less children in the world. It's a form of population control on the face of it. But let's talk about Gloria Steinem. Um, you cannot separate her from the kind of women's lib, women's rights movement. But let's pull the veil off her. Let's let folks know who she was.
1: In case you don't know, Gloria Steinem worked for the CIA. This was spoken by her out of her own mouth ...on camera more than once. I watched it. This should be all you need to know about why she did all of the things that she did... ...and how she was able to put into the spotlight so much with the mainstream media with all these agendas. Beginning in the 1950s and working throughout the 1960s and all of the upheaval that was occurring... ...and then into the 1970s with Ms. Magazine, this woman has done a lot of damage not the least of which was massively contributing to the destruction of the family unit, the traditional family unit, mind you, and an even heavier blow to the black
0: communities and their family units. And as we have stated in at least two previous episodes, uh, a direct hand in the lowering of birth rates in this world, and in the episode I'm referencing, we point out that many of the races in this world, unless the birth rate changes, are headed for extinction. Historically, a birth rate of, what is it, Jason, 2.0 or something like that? I've forgotten. Um, historically, those birth rates have never been recovered from. Um, places like Japan, terribly low birth rates right now uh, here in the United States. Uh, and it can all be tied to, to things like this, not just the women's lib movement or whatever the hell Gloria Steinem was up for the CIA. Um, there are many avenues that were went down, but they were all top-down constructions.
1: So keeping in mind what we just gave you on Gloria Steinem, here is the official blurb on Ms. Magazine, and it isn't very difficult to read between the lines. Ms. is an American liberal feminist magazine co-founded by second-wave feminists and socio-political activists Gloria Steinem and Dorothy Pitnam-Hughes. Its founding editors were Letty Cotton Pogrebin, Mary Tom, Patricia Carbine, Joanne Edgar, Nina Finkelstein, and Mary Peacock ms first appeared in 1971 as an insert in new york magazine the first standalone issue appeared in january of 1972 with funding from new york editor clay felker from july 1972 until 1987 it appeared on a monthly basis it now publishes quarterly During its heyday in the 1970s, it enjoyed great popularity but was not always able to reconcile its ideological concerns with commercial considerations. Since 2001, the magazine has been published by the Feminist Majority Foundation, based in Los Angeles and Arlington, Virginia. So, yeah, this thing has CIA written all over it.
0: 2001, huh? Since 2001, um, they've reorganized. But, you know, is there anything that doesn't come out of New York in this country? It's like the ground zero for everything that ends up mattering. But uh, in my lifetime, all the way back in the 70s, there was this big push at one point where when you addressed a female, you didn't know whether to call her Miss, Ms, or Mrs., because of the movement that was founded by these folks. Uh, There was this whole push that now we had to use the word Ms. Um, Happened a long time ago, but there it is, man. This, out of Gloria Steinem's own mouth, she was a CIA operative. You can look up the clip on YouTube.
1: So, treading into the 1970s, let's talk about the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, or the NPT. And this is a landmark international treaty whose objective is to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons and weapons technology, to promote cooperation in the peaceful uses of nuclear energy, and to further the goal of achieving nuclear disarmament and general and complete disarmament. The treaty represents the only binding commitment in a multilateral treaty to the goal of disarmament by the nuclear weapon states. Opened for signature in 1968, the treaty entered into force in 1970. On May 11, 1995, the treaty was extended indefinitely. A total of 191 states have joined the treaty, including the five nuclear weapon states. More countries have ratified the NPT than any other arms limitation and disarmament agreement, a testament to the treaty's significance. That, of course, was the official blurb on it.
0: Of course. And what, what more do you need to know here? Um, 191 states have joined the treaty. Just count the ways. Just take a moment to count the ways. Nuclear weapons do not exist as described. There's a massive forum on crow 7 radiocom which have endless proofs that go well beyond what we cover in episode 53. Um, and so here we have this whole worldwide thing going on. And what's it about? It's about an idea. It's dragging your mind to the crossroads. And by the way, the idea doesn't have any merit. It's all poppycock.
1: All right, moving on with some more technology. The Intel 4004 is a 4-bit central processing unit, or CPU, that was released by Intel Corporation in 1971. It was the first commercially available microprocessor by Intel, and the first in a long line of Intel CPUs. The chip design started in April of 1970 and was completed in January of 1971. The first commercial sale of the fully operational 4004 occurred in March of 1971 to Busicom Corporation of Japan, for which it was originally designed and built as a custom chip. In mid-November of the same year, with the rather prophetic advertisement of announcing a new era in integrated electronics. The 4004 was made commercially available to the general market. The 4004 was the first commercially available monolithic processor fully integrated in one small chip. This began the technological line for the home computing revolution and all of the other wonders of computing technology that we enjoy the luxury of today. Microsoft officially starts up in 1975 and Apple computers in 1976, which would be the beginnings of their home computer revolutions, making the concept of a computer in a home not just a usable possibility, but now, along with the internet, an absolute necessity.
0: Well, they were pretty good at naming things, weren't they? The 404, which is the 44 idea, but of course it's the 8 idea. Little infinity going on there, eh, Jason? (laughs) So how early did you get a computer into your life? It was the mid-90s, right? It was before the internet was really available to people. That's when I got in, but um, prefacing the next bullet point, uh, what's kind of funny is in my family um, televisions and things like that weren't very important we never saw a color tv in our household until late in the 80s actually Um, but for some reason in the 70s we had a pong game on our black and white tv i don't even know where it came from but yeah
1: i vaguely remember those it was a little standalone thing kind of the predecessor to the
0: atari yeah, it was a little little tiny box that had one game on it, Pong, uh, with two little wheels that you spun to move your paddles, and the more advanced ones, you could speed it up, and the more really advanced ones, you could control the size of your paddle, um, but it was it was a huge deal. It's hard to communicate to people now that are so used to the games we have now what a big deal this was, because up to that point, your television was not interactive. You stared at it, it did what it did, and all of a sudden, with Pong, you could make your television do things from user input. Um, So there's the line in the sand, man, 1972. Well, in the very early
1: 80s, I got an Atari 800XL computer after having an Atari 2600 that my older brother and I shared, and I basically grew up with computers being a normal thing in my mind. And as part of society, a lot of people I knew were into computers and technology and all that. And a lot of my friends went on to get into computers and things like that.
0: Well, I was kind of fortunate, um, because I grew up basically a decade before you. And um, I was never very impressed by Pong. I played it not that much, but I did play it. Um, And by the time computers came, I was interested in trying to be an animator and things like this. And then, of course, some of my first big jobs out of school after my internet technology degree was sitting in front of a computer for 40 to 80 hours a week during internet startups. So basically, I always viewed computers as I got to sit here and do this. And when I don't have to, I'm going to go do something else. And that's carried forward to today. So that's quite different from the generation of young people that we now have, where there's really no separation, there's no facet of off-time or free-time that isn't integrated with technology. And again, that first processor was very aptly named, the 4004. So most folks think of
1: Pong, which was released in 1972, as the first commercially released video game. But it was actually a game called Computer Space, released in 1971 by Nutting Associates, That was the first fully released to the public console machine it didn't take off the way pong did and so it is looked at as being the first
0: so i'm not even familiar with this one i'm not even sure if i've seen it Uh, are you familiar with computer space at all
1: yes i actually looked it up on youtube to see what it looked like and all that and they were very cool looking space age console things it was a not a console for your television but an early arcade standalone. style exactly standalone yeah and uh it was very sleek and rounded very 2001 a space odyssey kind of thing or actually it looked a lot more like stuff that i saw in a clockwork orange it had that kind of look to it with a very rounded screen and, and all that kind of thing very very cool looking very artistic i guess you would say and it was a very very simplistic game where you had a little rocket ship and you shot at saucers that were shooting back at you
0: Well, you see, there's another reason that uh, my generation wasn't big too much into the consoles, because that's when the quarter arcades were still here. So you could go play Galaga or Space Invaders. Um, You did these things at the arcade. But there's a whole esoteric side of gaming that people are completely unaware of. We may do a show on it at some point. A good example of that is Galaga, the game Galaga. Um, It has been slyly inserted into common culture to represent some hidden aspects of our existence. Uh, And I'll just mention this before we move on. Uh, One, I think it's maybe Winter Soldier. They're on their high-tech flying battleship or aircraft carrier, whatever the hell it is. And uh, Iron Man looks over and goes, that guy's playing Galaga. He doesn't think we know, but he's playing, you know, why do they do that? There is a reason. Um, And it, it, it echoes back to... And I can't think of the name of the movie. There's a movie that came out probably in the 80s, Jason, where there's a trailer park where there's a standalone arcade game. And it was put there to try to find the best starfighter. The last starfighter. Right. The last starfighter. So there's a direct correlation to that idea and what I'm mentioning about Galaga. But we'll touch on that another time.
1: All right. Moving on. Toward the end of World War II... 44 leaders from all of the allied nations met in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in order to create what would be called a new worldwide economic order. Much of the worldwide economy has been said to have been decimated by the war, of course, although I would suggest that war is great business for certain folks at the very least. The United States easily changed from its Great Depression economy to a booming wartime economy as a result of World War II. So, the United States would emerge as the world's new economic leader, replacing Great Britain, at least on the surface. This historic meeting created several worldwide economic agencies, but it also created an international gold-backed monetary standard, which relied heavily upon the United States dollar. This system worked quite well up until the 1960s, when the weight of the system upon the United States became what was said to be unbearable. On August 15th, 1971, President Richard Milhouse Nixon shocked the world when he officially ended the international convertibility from United States Federal Reserve note dollars into gold, which brought an end to the Bretton Woods
0: arrangement. Quite a bit going on here, but here's here's a recent thing that I've noticed. Um, I haven't looked into it super thoroughly, but the idea in the minds of most people, not too many decades ago, was nothing was bigger than Wall Street. At some point, kind of the Hong Kong exchange was was recognized as being up there, but just recently I saw stated outright that the city of London dwarfs both Hong Kong and. Um, Wall Street put together. Um, I don't know if that's true, but that is the idea that is now being put out that the city of London um, or basically what would be amount to the banking center of Britain is bigger than Hong Kong and Wall Street put together. How very interesting. It is. And that is a stark change in the way uh, the media wants us to view things because not too long ago, uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, uh, the the idea always put out was that Wall Street was the be all and end all of money in our world.
1: I think we all know that the uh, powers that be are a lot of these banksters coming through the city of London. I think we know that now pretty certainly, wouldn't you say?
0: No, you could do endless shows on the city of London alone. It is such a bizarre thing. And even their traditions where well, you, know, you probably recall. What is it that the queen can't even go there without permission or some nonsense?
1: Correct. Because it's a separate state.
0: Yeah, it's just it's it's more than you think, man. It is it is I don't, I don't even know. It's the gatekeeper of basically everything that happens in the world because currency drives everything in the world.
1: And they play it off as some cutesy-pootsy old tradition. Yep. Because, you know, the English love their traditions. No, man, there's something there. That's a real thing. You're trying to say that the queen cannot enter this small parcel of land, even though the whole
0: country is under her dominion, but not this one little place. Yeah. Well, now can't <laughs> It'd be nice if there were many places in the world the Queen couldn't go without permission. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, the point here is, is if it is factually true what media is now pushing, uh, that the city of London does more with currency, has more, trades more in a single day than both Hong Kong and Wall Street put together, it's a very telling thing indeed. That is a massive shift in power to what they wanted you to believe couple decades ago, and that would have been that Wall Street was the be-all and end-all. And occasionally we'd hear about Hong Kong. It's a going concern. And the other thing is, you got to realize that um, since they used to state that Hong Kong was getting to be a big deal, China's gone totally to capitalism, hasn't it? So you would expect that mass of people to be madly feeding into the Hong Kong stock exchange. Uh, Anyhow, if it's true, uh, City of London is now bigger than both of them put together. So the act of removing
1: the gold standard would trigger the massive inflation that was rampant throughout the 1970s. Anything left from the colorful, wonderful, super-happy 1960s was dispelled quite quickly after the initial years into the 1970s. Everything about this society would reflect this as well. Many color schemes used are described as fall or autumn colors— Earth tones is another descriptor that is used and would be extremely prevalent in this decade as the earth movement would begin in 1970 with the first Earth Day being on April 22nd of 1970. Beige, rust, avocado, harvest gold, mustard yellow, earthy brown, all these colors play together in patterns and solids. Appliances would take on these colors as well. Quite a contrast to the psychedelic
0: 60s. All right. Well, I hate to say what I'm going to have to because a lot of people are going to be upset because they're invested in Earth Day, but it's no different than the World Wildlife Fund. These were put together by the top. Uh, If you participate in them, you are probably a person trying to do good things in the world. The problem becomes that these things exist because the people who control our world wanted them to exist. And we've done a lot on the World Wildlife Fund across certain episodes to show um, how the excuses used that we're helping animals, while at the same time, they're completely hindering human beings in one way or another and taking control of massive portions of land. Um, We may cover Earth Day at some point, but... You know, here we are in the 1970s and I'll stay. from all the research that we've done. There are two presidents that have that started what has become more damage to the modern world than any others I can see. Uh, one of those was Jimmy Carter, who stacked for the first time every portion of government with trilateral commission members. And the other one was Richard M. Nixon, who not only took us off the gold standard and decimated uh, the stability the currency used to have before that, in 1973, he did a thing that we will never quit paying for until it changes. He made hospitals for profit with Kaiser Permanente. I think that was an idea that was meant to be here a while, Permanente, even taking the royal name of Germans, Kaiser, as part of it. Um, Before that, and very few people are my age listening to this i would imagine it used to be that hospitals were here not for profit but for the health of a human being after this happened in 1973 under richard milhouse nixon it became for-profit corporations that slowly crept away from any concern with the idea of healing it became all about control and money
1: and i'm gonna take a moment here once again to reiterate what i've said so many times And that the social engineering, in my opinion, is very obvious coming out of the 60s and into the 70s. Everything has this very dark, gritty look and feel and sound. And the example I always use is watch an episode of the original Star Trek, which is vibrant and colorful and sounds good and all that. And then watch an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man, for instance. That is what I used as a basis for comparison. And even though there's several years apart, 1973 from 1966, 67, and Star
0: Trek is better, technically speaking. That's amazing. There's no doubt. There is no doubt. But there's another thing, since you brought it up, about $6 million man people can look at. uh, More than one person played Steve Austin, and it's demonstrable. Uh, There is one episode that I recall... Having viewed a number of years ago when I began to realize this, um, it's about an island that nobody can see and I guess there's aliens there or something while well, the $6 million man has a fight scene on that island. And uh, part of what was left in you can see the prosthet- prosthetics on his face wrinkling up. Um, and here's another thing look at look at people like Glenn Campbell look at the whole way their faces and then look at Lee Majors, the guy who played the six million dollar man. But the main takeaway here is uh, when you get into the 70s, not everything was covered so well, but nobody had any reason to believe there was any reason for concern. After all, the greatest generation was still there that had massive pride in the United States. They had come through World War II. They had saved the world from the evil enemy. Uh, all this trust still invested in everything. They they didn't have a reason to scrutinize anything, and they didn't. But there's one example. Go look at, at Six Million Dollar Man episodes. There's more than one Lee Majors or more than one actor playing six million dollar man but there's all that jason
1: now there is a technical reason why audio and probably some video film and all that took a downturn and that's because in the 50s and into the 60s a lot of the equipment was built by hand and run by people who are absolute geniuses with the the gear with the equipment with sound and, and room and acoustics and all that kind of thing and then as we get into the uh solid state age Things start being able to be mass-produced, and of course tolerances start getting a little more iffy because they just want to churn things out, and of course that has a cumulative effect after part after part of part not being quite where it should be, and you have what we see in the 1970s where it's just not quite as good. Now, as far as music is concerned, it does kind of rebound, and toward the late 70s everything does start sounding a lot cleaner and flatter and all that kind of thing because everything solid state. And the tape machines got better. But there's a transition period where I hear a lot of things in the 70s. It just does not sound as good as the 1960s or or even the
0: 50s, really. Well, here's the thing. What's the main difference between an analog device and a digital device? Um, And you and I are about to demonstrate this with Cymatics, right? We're going to use analog devices. Um, in an analog device, you have real aspects of nature going on—real current, real waves, real vacuums, real whatever the heck you want to look at. By the time it gets to digital, everything's been converted to a one or a zero or some semblance of that. In other words, the the natural thing that's being mimicked here is being mimicked by computer code, whether it's binary or otherwise. And one of the things Jason and I are going to set out to do is try to demonstrate whether or not an analog signal of the same frequency is any different than its digital counterpart. Um, These are tough things to go at, but at the base of it, that's the way I think about it. Because I remember when I first started playing music and guitar, there were tube amps. And that has a sound that you just don't hear anymore. It's the same thing with records and MP3s. Uh, Most of today's young people listen to MP3s and they think that's quality music. It is not. Go back and listen to even an old scratched up LP. There's a life to it, a deeper depth, a volume, a fullness that is completely missing in the later MP3s.
1: Well, a lot of people are equating that the cleanliness of the digital is the superiority over the vinyl or the tape or whatever. And sometimes that's true, but with MP3s especially, you're talking about massive lossiness. And the smaller the MP3, the more frequencies are being chopped out of the frequency of the wave so that it can be smaller. And of course, that just starts having a cumulative effect again. It just starts sounding like blip.
0: So basically, the idea behind that is we will throw out quality so we can have volume. You see, these are not logical choices that any human being would make if they understood the choice being made. They would always want quality. You want the best you can have. But what we what happened, in essence, was we were convinced the CD was going to be a great thing, which is so ironic, because the CD ends up being what kills the music industry as it once was, because you could rip the music. And that's how places like Napster and other things happened. So basically the record companies which were told didn't want to go to cd were talked into going to cd and then as soon as computers were in every household anyone could rip the music but that sets aside the fact and i don't know how to describe it it's a, it is a surgical very sterilized kind of cold surgical sounding event when you listen to the music in that way compared to the old analog ways that we used to use.
1: And you'll hear a lot of audio engineers, especially if you read older articles, say that the CDs that were being put out of certain classic albums just didn't sound anywhere near as good as the good LPs that were available. They said like, oh no, it just doesn't sound the same. It's missing something.
0: That's right. And there's another scam going on because when we went to CD, the marketing to push how much better they were um, actually made you pay for for a CD, and the fact is that it cost a fraction to make the CD, because it's digital. You can reproduce it endlessly. You're not pressing vinyl and cutting grooves and making a 12-inch sleeve with all this artwork. You got this little plastic gem case and a little plastic CD. The cost went down drastically, and that's part of what helped kill the music industry as it used to be, because all of a sudden, the price jumped up for CDs, and that's when the whole question came to be of why the hell am I buying this whole album when I only really want this one song, or at least that's excused use. And of course that pays the way for ideas like Napster, where I want this song, but there's all that.
1: So as the economy took its massive downturn and inflation got out of control this would be the end for the common household to have a single working family member unless they had one hell of a good job. Both parents having to work meant no one at home to watch and raise the children. But the state had the answer for this. It's so much easier to control a population when you can indoctrinate them from the ground up.
0: Right. This is also, and most people don't recognize it as such, um, it is claimed. And these are mainstream statistics so who knows how close they come but it is claimed that the height of the united states is a successful thing uh unions made up 37 percent of the country whether or not that's true um, some version of that is true i don't know how accurate the numbers are but currently the last set of numbers i saw uh unions are about six percent or less Um, And what's happened is ideas like unions, which used to add diversity and actually a lot of job security into retirement, were demonized and people were convinced that these were bad things. And the truth of it is, is that anytime things like unions happen, the the one person who doesn't want the union is the corporation owner because they lose a little bit of control to the workers, right? So that's all starting to gear up at this time. It's just not very visible because the breaking of unions is going to come – decades later.
1: Now, the concept of both parents having to work is pretty much the accepted norm now, wouldn't you say? You see both parents always working unless, again, one of the parents has a very, very good high-paying job.
0: Well, the whole Gloria Steinem thing and the women's lib movement pays into this because women, uh, one of the things they were trying to convince women is that be equal to a man, you have to act like a man, you have to work like a man, you have to dress like, and that's part of what pushed the birth rates up higher, because people were going to start working, but you can see how the table was set here, because by the time women are going to leave the family and the household and go into the workplace now, because everyone needs money to live, the table had already been set in that direction. And, you know, we, we see the result of what's happened, but it's just a shame that only us old dusty people can remember it now. Most people who are probably listening to this have lived most of their lives where everyone needs a job. Um, That's not the way it used to be. There used to be a household concern where generally, not always, the mother was in charge of the home, the children, the family, and everything to do with it. And the father was expected to make a living and provide everything on the other side, um, this was the traditional way in many cultures and uh, in, in variations of that, that how the genders interact is broken down. That was all broken in the 60s. And by the time we get up to the, the 70s, um, it's a whole other thing now. And not only that, divorce is coming online in a big way. Uh, in the early 60s, divorce was still taboo. And you can go back and look at things like, I don't know, Hollywood movies or Johnny Carson or other things where are, they'll trot out famous people that every loves who's now getting a divorce because they're introducing the idea that divorce is fine. Um, But in my lifetime, there was a time when you did not openly talk about divorce. It was a shameful idea that you'd failed somehow. Look where we are now. Um, Supposedly over 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And again, entertainment and the people, the heroes of entertainment are what normalized this in the same way they normalized smoking back in the golden age of Hollywood. And that Demonstrates the power of the crossroads idea. You're presented with an idea, you have to make a decision. If you make no decision and the exposure goes on, you just take it on board. And smoking is a perfect example. And Jason and I have done episodes to show how only men were smoking and that wasn't good enough for the cigarette companies. So they hired Edward Bernays to make it okay for women to smoke. Well, who backed that? Hollywood backed that. There's your favorite Hollywood actress smoking endlessly in every scene for decades, until, lo and behold, they got what they were after. Women could now smoke openly.
1: And let's just look at what we've covered so far. We're only into the early 1970s, and what has the powers that be accomplished? They have attacked the family and decimated it. They have dragged the economies down. They have convinced everyone that you have to work
0: and struggle and things just aren't that good anymore.
1: They've accomplished this by like
0: 1973. There's more, too, Jason. The gender roles, uh, money, uh, what money, how stable money used to be has been decimated. Healthcare has been trashed, ruined. The concern for healthcare is no longer going to be the health of the patient, it's going to be about corporate profits. But not only that, and most people, every time I mention this, so many people get upset. But I don't give a damn. I was there. I saw it. One thing between the 60s and 70s that changed massively is drug culture is introduced and it's here to stay. Even now, you go to your grandparents and go into their medicine cabinet. The drugs they're taking were given by a pharmaceutical company. Nonetheless, this was not the case in the greatest generation. The greatest generation, it is stated, wasn't even sure they wanted to take aspirin. They didn't trust it. Look where we are now. All the young cultures have partying of some kind, and while I don't know whether the young people are anywhere near the drug use that was going on when I was their age, uh, what I can tell you is it's been inserted into the normalcy of life now. And the difference is, is when you grow up and you quit saying life's a party and try to have a family and kids, a lot of people walk away from partying, other than maybe drinking. But it doesn't stop anymore. Now, when you go to the doctor, there's more drugs. We We saw the introduction of drug culture across the entire spectrum in this period of time.
1: Well, that also set up for the whole normalization of a drug for everything. Right. The pharmaceutical companies have their cake and can eat it too now. They just throw a drug at everything and no one bats an eyelash about it.
0: You know, it's a crazy thing. Think about back to the episodes we did with Sean. Those, so many. I mean, my email blew up after we had Sean on, demonstrating cannabis had at one time in this world been one of the major medicines, natural medicines that cured so many things. Uh, what he calls the pharmacopoeia was over overtly overweighed by the uses that cannabis brought to the table. He went through the corporatization when it became. Uh, marijuana when they outlawed it. Well, now look where we are. Now they're going to legalize it everywhere, but we know what's following, right? Uh, already the genetic modification, the buying up of all the seed, the the illegal patenting of strains and things like this um, is going on. So e- even even when it finally comes time to recognize something like cannabis as important as it is, it's still getting screwed with. Um, but again, um, they're not legalizing cannabis for no reason. They want a society that is drinking, smoking, doing anything but paying attention. Um, And that's part of what's behind this. But again, uh, they'll do everything they can to, to destroy cannabis's ability to take any role in medicine.
1: All right, so since we're at the top of the hour, in hour two, we're going to start with the false flag event that was the oil crisis of the early, mid-70s. It lasted for a little while. Twice. Twice, yeah, twice. But they, again, they did such a good job of just convincing people that there was a problem where there was absolutely no problem whatsoever.
0: Nope. Uh, I lived through that, and as so many people who listen understand, uh, my father was a professor, who had summers off? So we drove from California to Rhode Island every summer. When this happened, uh, we didn't understand if we could make that 3,000-plus mile drive anymore. Because could we get gas? And at the time, a lot of it, uh, for a while there, they started to do every other day. Then they finally said, if you got an odd number on your license plate, you can get gas this day. And it even got so bad as we drove across uh the country and I remember this cuz my father was a peaceful man but he also had a 54 inch chest Um, we got to a place we were on E the next place we had to get to was hundreds of miles away and they were only going to give them half a tank that was the rule then and I remember him telling the guy fill up my damn car I'll rip your arms out of the sockets that's how bad it got but anyhow that brings uh, episode 158 to a close for hour one Uh, we hope you'll join us all over at Crow 777 Radio where free speech will rule and we hope you join us Sunday nights at Truth Frequency Radio for Crow 777 Live which also has a live chat And a lot of people have asked, um, Jason set up a Teespring shop that has basically the Crow777radio.com web address on it. It's a way for us to get the web address out and not be censored by search engines. So Teespring.com, there's a Crow777 store. And also, for anyone interested, Shoot the Moon, the movie, which is about to show for free again at LSU, as Jason mentioned in the opening, is streaming on demand on Vimeo. So if you go to look for Shoot the Moon, you can use Jason Lingren's name or the title Shoot the Moon, but you've got to be Vimeo on demand to get the search turned. But for right now, the second half of this is going to cover a lot of things that are tough to talk about in hour one with the good ship sensor all over our butts all the time. So please join us at crow777radio.com for hour two. There it is, man. Cheers.